The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. All right, so the book of Lamentations. You guys ready? How many of you had never heard of the book of Lamentations? Don't, don't admit that. All right, well, book of Lamentations. It is a prophetic book. Summer, I saw you over there. It is a prophetic book, uh, and the role of a prophet has been said to do this, to reveal the fault lines hidden beneath the comfortable surface of the worlds we invent for ourselves. That is, the little lies and delusions of control and security that get us through the day. The role of the prophet is to reveal our fault lines, the cracks beneath the surface of what we've been calling our fake foyer face, our hidden sins, our hidden idols, our wrong thought patterns, our wrong motives. And without raising your hand, without shouting out loud, but with being as honest as you can this morning with yourself, what would you say if you and I were in a place where nobody else could hear, what would you say are your fault lines? your cracks, your hidden sins, the thought patterns and motives that you know are not in line with God's revealed will. Well, God sends us his word to expose our fault lines to us graciously so that we can respond with faith and repentance. And sometimes uh, this exposure isn't pleasant. Remember what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We all have cracks. We all have sin that we don't want anybody else to know about. We somehow deceive ourselves into thinking the God of all creation who knows all things doesn't know about. And God has graciously given us his word to reveal those to us. But that revelation is not always pleasant. And in fact, oftentimes it's very painful. Uh, For the people of Israel, our ancestors in faith, uh, their fault lines were brutally, completely exposed in the year 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed the heart of their religious life and the people of Israel were sent into exile to Babylon. In other words, every physical manifestation of the Lord's presence with his covenant people was taken away from his people in 586 BC. This was a serious thing for the people of Israel. This was no small thing. From their perspective, everything had been lost. Nothing would ever be the same. And they were right. Nothing, in fact, would ever be the same for the people of Israel. And Jeremiah, who's believed to have written the book, wrote this poem. It's a poetic reflection on the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people in 586 B.C. And it is a beautiful, explicit, graphic poem. In it, we see it's intentionally structured. The first four chapters are acrostic poems. Now, acrostic poems are poems that have different sections, each one of them beginning with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I know we could all go and recite uh, the Hebrew alphabet, but the point is uh, that it's intentionally structured, and it's a beautiful poem, the first four chapters. The fifth chapter is not an acrostic, but it is a desperate prayer for the reconciliation of everything that was lost in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 
Now, the book of Lamentations, as the name suggests, uh, is not a very feel-good, happy book. And in fact, it's quite clear in communicating in poetry uh, the despair that the people of God felt in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem, in the wake of the exile. But we don't only see desperation in this little obscure book. We see a rugged hope in the context of desperation based upon a deep and intimate knowledge of the Lord, a knowledge of his love that is unending, his mercies that are new every morning, and his faithfulness that is great towards us. And are these truths that are these truths that lead the people of Israel from despair to hope and can likewise lead us from despair to hope. So this is going to be a good study. How are we going to go about doing this? Well, we have five chapters, three weeks. It's a lot of grounds, a lot of verses to cover. So we're going to do it like this. This morning, we're going to cover Lamentations chapter one and two. That's 44 verses. Uh, and we're going to see Israel encounter the heavy reality that sin always leads to destruction and despair. To the point where Jeremiah in Lamentations 2.13 says, your destruction is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? We're going to ask that question at the end of our time together today. And in Lamentations 3, we get the answer. The Lord. The Lord can heal us. He is our healing and hope. And we have this grounded in our hearts through his love, his mercy, and his faithfulness. Who can heal us today? Next week, the Lord. He is our healer and hope. We'll get a little bit of that this week because I can't leave you there. Uh, And then the third week, we're going to see that our healer, the Lord, will restore us. Who can heal us? The Lord. He's our healer and hope, and our healer will restore us. So that's kind of the roadmap going forward, and with that behind us, let's get started. So Lamentations 1 to 2. We see Israel's encounter with the truth that the path of sin always leads to destruction and despair. The path of sin always leads to destruction and despair, and we're going to look at this truth by noting several things. The path of sin How did Israel get on this path? Where does it lead? The clarity of judgment, the natural response of despair, and in the context of that despair, the first step of hope. I can't leave you with despair. We preach the gospel, so I've got to give you some hope. The path of sin, the clarity of judgment, the response of despair, and the first step to hope. And let me just one word of encouragement before we begin. Of the three weeks, this week is by far the heaviest. So I will, like the author of Hebrews, as Tracy pointed out last week, plead for you to bear with this word of exhortation. Hang with me. You're not going to build a megachurch talking about sin and the consequences of sin. Uh, These aren't popular things to talk about, but they are crucially important things for us to talk about. We need, as God's people, to know what the Bible says about sin and the consequences of sin. And there are a few better places to go in the book of Lamentations, to see a clear picture of sin and its consequences. So let's go there. Lamentations 1 through 2, the path of sin. How did Israel get on this path? Well, if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you know uh, the people of Israel were in Egypt. They were in slavery. They called out to the Lord to deliver them. The Lord answered their prayers, sent them Moses, who brought them out of slavery, crossed the river, and brought them to the mountain. Mount Sinai, where the Lord entered into a covenant with his people. And we, we read this in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. We learn something important about this covenant that the Lord entered into with his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you 
on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Make no mistake, the Lord entered into this covenant with his people by his grace. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, if you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The covenant that the Lord entered into his, with his people on Mount Sinai was conditional. That is, if the people walked in grateful obedience to the Lord's revealed will, they would experience covenant blessings. If the Lord's people evidenced a lack of faith and walked in disobedience, his people would experience covenant curses. Obey, experience blessings. Disobey, experience curses. And these curses and blessings are clearly set forth in two of the most important chapters of our Old Testament, Uh, And I know our Bibles, when we open our Old Testaments, they open up to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Am I right? Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. In these chapters, the Lord clearly sets forth, here's what the blessing looks like. Okay, If you walk in obedience, here are the blessings for you. And on the other side, if you walk in disobedience, here's what the cursing, the curses are going to look like. Okay, so let's look at these blessings. What does Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 tell us about these blessings? They're described as fruitful harvest, abundant provision, peace in the promised land, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. Remember, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you numerous offspring, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations, worldwide blessing. And so the Lord was going to fulfill his promises to Abraham through the people of Israel if they walked in grateful obedience to the Lord revealed will. And then most importantly, the climax of the Lord's blessings to his people is his presence with them. We read in Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, and in fact, the whole book of Leviticus pauses the narrative of the Old Testament to ask the question, how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? And the Lord makes a way through the Old Covenant, through the book of Leviticus, and he expresses his desire to dwell with them like this, I will make... My dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. The climax of the blessings of the covenant was not anything but the Lord himself and his presence with them, him walking with his people, being their God and they being his people. So they walked in obedience, evidence in faith. They experienced the blessing, climaxing in the Lord's presence with them. But if they evidenced the lack of faith by walking in disobedience, they would experience the curses. And what do the curses look like? Well, if you haven't read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, I'd encourage you to go home. If you take sin lightly, these are good chapters to read. They are scary chapters. These curses are described as panic Wasting disease, famine, military defeat, severe discipline, futility, destruction, death, pestilence, hunger to the point of eating their children, separation, desperation, devastation, and ultimately exile. In other words, ultimately the book of Lamentations. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 pretty clearly set forth two paths for the people of Israel to walk, either the path of obedience, which leads to blessing, and the path of sin, which leads to curses. But as we've seen throughout the history of the people of Israel, if you've read the story, you know over and over again, persistently in even greater degree, the people of Israel chose to travel upon the path of sin. 
And as the people chose to travel in the path of sin, the Lord gave them prophets to proclaim his word, to expose their fault lines, to say, listen, this is the path you're on. Repent so you can return to the path of obedience that leads to blessing. Curses are in front of you if you stay on this path. But again and again, the people refused. They shut their ears to the word of the Lord and continued on the path of sin. And we see that as the story unfolds, because of the rebellion against the Lord, the nation of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom had a series of wicked kings. If you read Kings and Chronicles, it's, it's amazing how wicked these kings were. So they went into exile before the southern kingdom in 722 BC. They went to Assyria. But still, the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, did not repent. They didn't heed the warning, and they kept on the path of sin. And so that's when we get to Lamentations 586 BC, with Jerusalem being destroyed and the people being sent into exile. But it's a fair question to ask, given the clarity of Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and the consistent ministry of the role of the prophets, how could the people of Israel get so confused? Why did they choose to walk on the path of sin instead of the path of obedience. I think we could all agree it's much better to be blessed than to be cursed. So why did they think it was better for them to walk on the path of sin? Where was the source of the confusion? And we get insight into that in Lamentations 2.14. Lamentations 2.14 gives us insight here. It says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. The people of Israel were walking on the path of sin, and the Lord sent them prophets to say, listen, the way you're living is in outright violation of what the Lord has called you to, how he's called you to live. And there's judgment coming for you. But Israel isn't that different from us. We don't I like to hear somebody getting up all in our face and saying, listen, the way you're living is not consistent with Scripture. That's not a popular thing or a pleasant thing. And so naturally, the people of Israel said, well, uh, we're going to forget you guys. And in fact, they imprisoned and killed some of these guys. They said, you know, we're going to raise up our own prophets. Uh, and the Lord said, your prophets. And these prophets, uh, they were more pleasant to listen to because they basically said, listen, you can think whatever you want. You can live however you want. And really, there's no consequence to it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow, you know, don't worry about it. Everything's good. You don't have to worry about what you think or how you live. And these false prophets, one of their biggest flaws was that they didn't reveal the sins of the people. They didn't say, listen, you guys are traveling on the path of sin that leads to destruction. They failed to expose, to reveal the fault lines of the people of Israel, and they kept on the path of sin. We see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. One great example is in the book of Jeremiah 25, 3 through 5. It's, it's appropriate to look at because many believe Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. Towards the end, Jeremiah ministered to the southern kingdom towards the end, uh, right before the exile and destruction of Jerusalem. And he said this to the people, For 23 years... The word of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Imagine getting a ministry post, staying there for 23 years, and not having anyone listen ever to your message. That was the plight of Jeremiah. I'm thankful for you guys. just want to say, uh, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. 
Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell among, upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. You're on the path of sin. Repent. Get on the path of obedience so that you can experience blessing, his presence instead of curses, his absence. But, you know, we're, we're pretty easily hard on Israel, right? I mean, we can see vividly in scriptures their mistake over and over again. We ask, like, how did they not get this? I mean, it was so clear. But before we're too hard on Israel, how often could this be said of us? We come in this room, we hear the gospel, we hear of the life of holiness that's to flow out of this gospel, then we leave, eat lunch, turn on the TV, forget about it, and live however the heck we want to live. Before we get too hard on them, it's our tendency as well. The Lord has clearly spoken to us as he spoke to the nation of Israel. Uh, Remember in Hebrews, the first two verses, the Lord, uh, long ago, many times, in many ways, the Lord spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us. That's not the question. He's speaking to us right now. The question is, are we listening? Or have we, like Israel, shut our ears to the word of the Lord? But Israel's deception was not only based upon their inclination to shut their ear to the word of God, it was also caused by what Jeremiah calls their lovers. Look at Lamentations 1.19. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. By lovers here, Jeremiah is likely referring to the surrounding nations of Israel that Israel had placed their hope in for deliverance and security. In other words, Israel had placed their hope for deliverance and security in a created thing rather than their creator and Lord. So if we put the sources of deception and confusion together, we see that Israel was traveling upon the path of sin for two reasons. One, they shut their ear to the word of the Lord. And two, they place their trust in created things rather than their creator. So are we making the same mistakes? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy and Romans 1 that, in fact, these tendencies are our same tendencies. We share the same tendencies that Israel had all those years ago. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Paul is about to die And he's giving his last words of encouragement and instruction to Timothy, his young disciple, who will continue in his ministry after Paul leaves. And Paul warns him of a day where people will no longer open their ears to the word of the Lord. He says this, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You don't have to examine the evidence too closely to realize that's exactly what is going on in our country today. And a little more personal, you don't really have to examine the evidence of our lives too closely to realize that we all have this tendency to shut out the word of the Lord when we don't like what it has to say to us and to live however we want to live. That tendency is still with us. We share that with Israel But we also share the tendency that Israel had to trust in created things rather than our creator. Paul warns us of this tragic fact in Romans 1, 21 through 22. He says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Well, tell us really what you think, Paul. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We have the tendency to put our place, our trust, and our hope in created things rather than the Creator. So where are we this morning? Are we on the path of sin like the nation of Israel all those years ago? Are we shutting our ears to the word of the Lord and trusting in created things rather than our Creator? Israel walked on this path for a long time until they finally reached the destination that this path always heads to, judgment and destruction. Their fault lines were exposed through God's judgment, and in light of that judgment, they had a certain clarity of thought. Judgment brings about clarity of two things for Israel. One, clarity of their sin, their guilt, and clarity of the circumstances, the consequences that flowed from their sin, their guilt. They traveled upon the path of sin, led to judgment, which resulted in a clarity of thought about their sin and consequences. Look at Lamentations 1.18, where we see the people finally confessing their sin before the Lord. Lamentations 1.18, the Lord is in the right. All this judgment, all this destruction around me, the Lord is perfectly just in doing this. Why? For I have rebelled against his word. 120, my heart is wrung within me. Why? Because I have been very rebellious. The buck stops here. There's nobody to point to like Adam and Eve in the garden. Our sin, we're the reason. Lamentations 217, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. What was his word, which he commanded long ago? Well, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. If you walk in obedience to my revealed will, by faith, you'll experience my blessing, my presence among you. If you don't, you'll experience covenant curses, my absence, and all these curses he set forth in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Finally, Israel is opening their scriptures and saying, oh, I have rebelled against the Lord. I'm guilty. And because of my sin, I'm experiencing these consequences. But the people of Israel not only saw their sin clearly, they saw the devastation, the consequences that flowed from their sin more clearly than they ever had. And it makes sense when your hidden fault lines are no longer hidden, when they're exposed for all the world to see, you can't pretend that they're not there. And so we see all throughout these first two chapters, uh, Israel poetically just lamenting before the Lord on the devastation that has come upon them because of their sin. 1-1, one, one, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. It's Jerusalem. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations, 1-3 through 4. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn. They were once the roads where people and festivals celebrating the Lord's presence and goodness among them traveled, but now the roads mourn. Why? For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Two, two through three, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah, he has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. 
He has cut down in fierce anger all the mighty of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. Like the author of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. 2.7, the Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. 2.9, the law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. 2.15, all who pass the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? 2.21, in the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. These are heavy, heavy passages. The people of Israel have been traveling upon the path of sin for a long time, pretending everything was okay. They no longer had that opportunity, that privilege, once they experienced the end of that path in judgment This judgment brought about this clarity of thought of their own guilt, their sin, and the consequences that flowed from their sin that affected every area of their life, that destroyed Jerusalem, sent them into exile. Every physical manifestation of the Lord's presence with them was gone. Their city was destroyed. They were in a foreign land as slaves. And naturally, this led them to the response of despair. To them, everything seemed to be lost. Despair was their natural response. And it makes sense. The common definition for the term despair is the complete loss or absence of hope. The complete loss or absence of hope. But most of us don't need a dictionary definition of despair. All of us at different degrees for different reasons, for different durations, have experienced despair. Waking up in the morning without really feeling a purpose, going through life without having any sense of hope. And this despair that we experience is something that we hold in common with the nation of Israel all those years ago in 586 B.C. We share their experience of despair. And the prophet poetically reflects on this feeling of complete despair all throughout these first two chapters. And I'm just going to read these. These are heavy verses worth contemplating but just let the despair of the people of Israel meet you in your despair and see the commonality between your circumstances and theirs. Lamentations 1-2. She, that's Jerusalem, weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. One seven. Jerusalem remembers in the day of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. If you've ever been there, In the wake of judgment, looking at how sweet life used to be, that is a bitter source of despair. 1.8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All those who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. 1.12, is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on me in the day of his fierce anger. One thirteen, he has left me stunned, faint all day long. One fourteen, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hands they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. 
He calls my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. 116, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. 117, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Finally, Lamentations 2, 10 through 11, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Jeremiah doesn't hold anything back here. He fully vents his pain. He fully vents his despair to the Lord. People of Israel have been on the path of sin for a long time, pretending everything was okay. But in the wake of judgment, they clearly saw their sin. They clearly saw the consequences of their sin that destroyed everything that they held dear, which removed every physical manifestation of the Lord's presence with them, from them, and that naturally led them to this place of complete and utter despair. But in the context of that complete and utter despair comes a question that gives us our first step towards hope. Anybody ready for some hope at this point in the sermon? We got it. Uh, Lamentations 2.13, the first step of hope. Jeremiah says this, What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Who can heal you? Their destruction was as vast as the sea. As I said, the picture is someone standing on the shore of the ocean looking out, and that's all you see. It's only destruction. There's nothing left. There is no hope. All hope is gone. They are in despair. And Jeremiah reflects on this, says it's ruin as vast as the sea, but then he asks a question that gives us a step towards hope. Who who can heal you? Note the assumption behind the question Uh, Israel could not heal themselves. They were in ICU, unconscious, and needy of a healer. They had to look outside of themselves. They could no longer pretend everything was okay. They could no longer pretend that they could fix it. They needed a healer outside of themselves to bring healing to them. They could no longer pull themselves up from their bootstraps. They needed a healer. But who could that be? I mean, who would bother healing them at this point? They had nothing desirable, nothing beautiful left within them. As we look through these first two chapters, we see that all their friends had become their enemies. Their lovers had deceived them and dealt treacherously with them. All their glory and majesty had departed from them. They had nothing to offer. They had nothing desirable left in them. They had become filthy among the people. They were despised and their nakedness had been exposed and they had become unclean. Who would bother to heal someone like that? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that somehow you've outsinned God's grace? That's what Israel felt in 586 BC when Jerusalem was destroyed and they were sent into exile. But who can heal them? The Lord. The Lord can heal them. The one who justly brought the covenant curses upon his covenant people is the one who through his love Mercy and faithfulness longs to bless his people with covenant blessings. 
And we know Lamentations 3 gives us a hint of this reality. The people didn't need an instruction on the justice of God. They had lived the justice of God. They had rebelled against him and experienced the just penalty for their sin and rebellion. But they did need a little reminder of God's love, mercy, and faithfulness. And Jeremiah gives it to them in Lamentations 3, 21 through 23, which really, knowing the context of the book of Lamentations, these are some of the most precious and beautiful words in all of the scriptures. Jeremiah says this in Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. But in the wake of all this destruction, in the midst of all this despair, Jeremiah says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Everything from his perspective had been lost except God's love for him, his mercy towards him, and his great faithfulness to his people. The Lord's love, mercy, and faithfulness doesn't depend on the merit, how good or bad his people are. It depends on who he is, his character. And these aren't abstract concepts. There's a lot of talk about love, mercy, faithfulness. These are concrete concepts for us, shown to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's love is defined in the fact that he sent, he loved us so much that he sent his only son to bear the curses that we deserve because of a rebellion against God so that we may experience the blessings that we don't deserve that he does. The message of the gospel is that Christ bore the curses on the cross and that we get the blessing because of what he's done for us by grace and through faith. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Notice the curse and the blessing language. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, we walked on the path of sin. We deserve all of the covenant curses that were poured out upon the people of Israel, yet we don't bear the curses. Christ bore the curses we deserved on the cross. So now, through faith, by grace, there's no more curse for us. There's no more wrath that's been fully exhausted on the shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross. And not only that, but his perfect righteousness has been credited to us so that we can experience the blessings of the covenant that we don't deserve. The message of the Bible is that all of us, like Israel, have been on the path of sin. All of us, either at one time or currently. The message of the Bible is that path leads to judgment. And at this time, as the Hebrews author says, as long as it's called today and we have time to repent, that judgment, the consequences of sin, graciously can produce in us a clarity of our sin, of our guilt, and the wreck that we've made our life, the consequences that have flowed naturally from that sin. And it may lead us naturally to despair, but the hope and the message of the gospel is you don't have to stay there. There is a hope for you, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
And I don't know where all you guys are this morning. There's a lot of folks here. Some of you are still on the path of sin, kind of playing with God and these Christian things, coming to church. The message of Lamentations 1 through 2 for you is to repent, believe. You're on the path of sin that's leading to judgment. There's a free gift through the person work of Jesus Christ that you can just lay your hope in Christ and get on the path of obedience that leads to blessing. Some of you have traveled along the path of sin so long that you've reached the destination of judgment, severe consequences flowing from that sin, and the message for you is to allow that judgment to bring a clarity of your own sin and the consequences that have flowed from that sin, but to allow that clarity to draw you to the healer, Jesus Christ, rather than to the pit of despair. Some of you this morning have traveled the next step. You're in the pit of despair, feeling the weight of your sin and guilt and the consequences that have come upon you because of that. The message of this passage and the message of the gospel is to take the first step towards hope by looking to the healer that has been provided to you in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And finally, Some of you are in the depths of despair, not because of your own sin, but because we live in a fallen world. Let me be completely clear. Not all despair is the result of your sin. Not all bad consequence in your life is the direct result of your sin. The reality of life in a fallen world just isn't that simple. It's more messy than that. Some of you are dealing with a loss on a magnitude I can't imagine. Some of you are dealing with physical and emotional issues that are, are heavier than I've experienced, and I can't fully understand it because I've not been there. I can't pretend to understand the combined weight and pain and suffering that is represented in this room. But I know someone who can, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah describes this truth and his suffering that was of a magnitude that none of us can, desire, can imagine. And it's his suffering that gives us hope. It's his suffering that brings us healing. Isaiah describes it like this. And we're going to close out by reading Isaiah 53, 2 through 5. And wherever you are this morning, whether you're on the path of sin, you're experiencing judgment, you're seeing for the first time the clarity of your sin and your guilt and the consequences, whether you're in the pit of despair because of your sin or just because you live in a jacked up fallen world, Let these verses breathe life into you and point you to the healer of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 2 through 5. Isaiah says this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Christ is our healer. We're all in need of healing. He bore on the cross the curses we deserve so that we can experience the blessings that we don't. 
wherever you are this morning, look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of Lamentations. Thank you for the reality that we read this book not in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, but after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That in the depth of our despair, we don't have to ask the question, who is our healer, without knowing explicitly the answer. You have provided for us a healer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Lord. For those of us who are on the path of sin, Lord, would you allow this clear message to bring about the fruit of repentance, Lord. Sin is so deceitful, sin hardens, Lord, but would you by your grace overpower the deceptive power of sin and its hardening, Lord? Would you soften hearts that we would once again heed your word and trust you, our creator, rather than created things, Lord, for those who have traveled on the path of sin and experienced judgment, Lord, would you allow the clarity of their guilt and the clarity and heaviness of the consequences that have flowed from that guilt to drive them to their knees and open empty arms of faith to receive the free gift of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who are in despair because of their sin, all hope seems lost. Lord, would you breathe hope into their hearts through the message of the gospel? that through faith, the free gift of salvation could take away the curses that they deserve so that they can enjoy the blessings they don't. Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work of comfort for those who are experiencing suffering because they live in a fallen world. Lord, would you grant by the power and presence of your spirit healing through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you do your work here in these next few minutes as we sing, Lord? Would you seal this message for your glory and our good? You promise your word never returns to you void. So, Lord, we, we believe that you're working here among us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you'll do all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.